Well, that was the opening music to Elevator to the Gallows, released in 1958 and starring Jean Moreau, who we're doing a couple of her movies. It also stars Maurice Ronet, uh, George Pujuli, and a host of other folks. Yeah, Jorge Burton and Gene Wall, they were pretty important. Simon Carolla didn't last too long in the movie. He, he, was, he was out of the movie in the first 10 minutes or so. <laughs> yeah, he he met a bitter end. And I want to mention also a, a tip of the hat to the music by Miles Davis. Oh yeah, it was so good. He improvised the whole musical score for this film, and it's just it's a it's a perfect fit between the story and the music. I love that music. That's amazing that he improvised it while he was watching the film. That's so cool. That's the legend. I don't know if that's the actual case or not, but and it was directed by Louis Mallet who I think was part of the French New Wave movement. And we were just talking before we got started that uh, kind of reminded me of Rafifi, which came out in 55. In my mind, as I was watching it, 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 it fit into the time frame of Battle for Algiers. And they mention Algiers several times in the movie. And then also Day of the Jackal, which was a little bit later. It was a, well, I guess it was the early 60s. So it was kind of still in that same time period. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews, and we're doing uh, special episodes over there on Patreon. Um, we talked about doing a Jean Moreau retrospective uh, probably in the next week or so, and then we're going to have a retrospective of our first 200 episodes uh, because we're coming up on that yeah like right away <laughs> i better get busy <laughs> right so this is uh episode 199 and episode 200 is going to be star wars so that's all stuff that's coming up that's going to be exciting um and i'm matt johnson coming to you from spring like north bend we've got some cherry blossoms on the trees today Nice. Uh, this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where we're also having really nice weather, and uh, we want to welcome everybody back to Elevator to the Gallows. For this film, I was talking to my friend in Seattle, Bernie. Matt, you know Bernie, Matt. And uh, the first thing he asked, he said, oh, I love that film. Did you love the music by Miles Davis? Because he's a big jazz buff. And I did. So I looked this up. This is a quote from uh, one of the things I was reading. The improvised soundtrack by Miles Davis... And the relationship the film establishes among music, image, and emotion were considered groundbreaking for the time. That's a pretty good summary. Yeah, the, when, especially when she was wandering the streets at night. Oh, yeah. Wow, yes.
music really set the mood for that. And then the car chase scene, and then when after the car chase scene, when they're at the motel, there's some music playing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The film has a lot of different things going on, but for me, one of my takeaways from it is that if you're planning something like this, be sure to cover all the details, because the one thing that the uh, lead character forgot was the rope on the side of the building. And when he went back to get it, everything unraveled. It was a perfect plan up until that point. The, the best part of that for me was that they cut a little bit later to where Jean Moreau's character, uh, who is... Florence. Florence. Carola is their last name. She's kind of walking up to this office building where he works, uh, Julien Tavernier. The rope is just sitting there on the sidewalk, so it fell down by itself. <laughs> That's the irony of the whole thing. Julian and Florence are having an affair. Florence wants Julian to kill her husband so that they can have time together, but make it look like a suicide. We go off from there into a, a rather well-done uh, series of events. And, you know, the subtext of this, uh, you mentioned it earlier with Algiers, but a couple of the things that came to mind for me is that in this time period, the French had just left Vietnam and uh, that part of Asia, uh, kind of being run out of town. And then Algiers was about to become a free uh, state. And, and so I think there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, uncertainty and, and anger and, and uh, second-guessing within the culture of the films at that time. Julian was a French legionnaire. I don't know if he was, I think he was a paratrooper. The other thing that I thought about, too, with the two German tourists was that this was only 13 years after the occupation of France. Yes. I think that there was a lot of resentment still. I, I think that comes out in what happens at the motel uh, in some ways. I, I think that the, the way the German tourist is so kind of almost condescending, uh, patronizing to the young man, I, I think that leads to his, their demise. Oh, my. And, of course, he has the deluxe version of the latest Mercedes coupe with those gullwing oh doors, that car. which was the huge rage at that the time. 300SL. Everybody wanted yeah, those. Yeah, that thing was amazing. Wow. wow. Like a bullet. Probably worth a million dollars. No pun intended on the <laughs> yeah. bullets. Well, just a little background on our director, uh, Louis Mall. I, I did a little research on him. For uh, many years, he was married to Candace Bergen. Their marriage lasted from 1980 until his death in 1995. But he he has done two movies that I just think are super. One is Atlantic City with Burt Lancaster. That was made in uh, 1980. And the other, Goodbye Children in 1987, which is based on his own life story. He was in a Catholic church and... Uh, uh, place of living during World War II in France, and the uh, Nazis came in and took away some of, uh, some of the students who were, the, all the students that were Jewish and also one of the instructors. And this movie that uh, Louis Malle made is, is just exquisite. And then another film, and then I will move off of that, My Dinner with Andre in 1981, which is a two-hour oh film that's yeah, marvelous. That's and, and the lead in that uh, now has a, uh, his name is Wallace Shawn. He now has a lead role with Young Shelton on CBS as a, in, a, in a comedy, <laughs> situation comedy. But that's a great, that, he, Dewey Maul died uh, sadly at a very young age at 63 from cancer. 
But his career was really excellent. It was a really well-directed film. About the midway point of the film, it was just it just felt like it was meandering. And I think that was actually just embodied by uh, Florence's walking around Paris at, in the middle of the night, just kind of looking for julian but then it all but then it all comes together like in the last five minutes i remember looking at the time left on the video and there was five minutes left and i, I, I said to myself how, how are they going to pull this all together in five minutes <laughs> and then the, it really came together at the end it was like wow okay they, they they really got those people he packed a lot into uh 88 minutes uh, that middle section where she's wandering and it's night and it's lonely and and she goes into that bar with all those strange people that have been drinking too much. I think that was the intent of the director to give it a feeling of she's lost, she doesn't know what's going on, she can't get a hold of her lover, she doesn't have any clue as to what's going on. I think I think he wanted that to be a part of the mood. It leaves me feeling like if I were her, I would be panicked. She has no clue what's happened. Remember there was two scenes during that section of the film where she almost got hit by a car Yes. I almost felt like she was in some kind of like state where she was almost like catatonic. She looked really out of it and, and depressed and she was she was actually talking to herself at some points. To me it, it felt like she was having almost like a mental breakdown. She had asked her lover to kill her husband and then pick her up at the cafe. Then she's waiting at the cafe and her lover's car drives by, but it's not her lover, or is it? She's not sure. She thinks it might be. And another woman in the in the passenger seat. And then that kind of just starts her spiral of, of trying to find him and trying to figure out what's going on. And I think it really just sends her over the edge. I couldn't agree more. And meanwhile, Julian is trapped in the elevator. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do talk, about, talk about a mistake. Oh, they're just, I don't want to give too much away because it's the kind of film that a lot of people may not have seen and, and I would really recommend that they take the time to look at it because it's a, it's a well-done film. And Jean Moreau is just perfect in that role. I had a little trivia question for the listeners. What movie in the 2000 to 2010 time frame was Jean Moreau in that we all loved? And the name of it is Love Actually from 2003 she plays a woman at the airport <laughs> i was surprised at how many movies she'd made and she's actually directed several films and i thought we need to do more than two movies of hers there's a, there was a bunch that looked really good she did over 100 films and just a couple that come to mind uh one from 1964 the train with burt lancaster and in that film she plays the owner of a hotel um during world war ii and lancaster is bent on making sure the Nazis can't steal all the art from France. And then another one that she plays a, uh, a lady of the evening, I guess I should say, Monty Walsh, which is an outstanding Western from 1970 with Lee Marvin. Sure, her role in that is not long, but it's memorable. Well, and I tried to find the one that she directed, the first one that she directed. I could not, for the life of me, find it. I didn't check eBay to see if it was on DVD or, or something, but... Uh, I think that one might be a tough one to find. She was active in the business from 1949 to 2015, so very long and very successful career. And then Maurice Rone, Rone, the the Julian character, was also in a hundred films. Another film about the French 
uh, and paratroopers lost command. He has a lead role in that with Anthony Quinn, 1966. So it's got a lot of really star power. And I think it's, for me, it's one of the most enjoyable films to watch because I watch the, the whole thing unravel before my eyes and I'm thinking, why didn't you remember to bring that rope in? What were you thinking? Oh, I know. It's crazy that he he uh, had this complete, brilliant plan laid out and executed it really well. Like I thought, boy, that there's no way that they're ever going to figure out that he did it. Even to the point of uh, locking the door so that it looked like that there had been nobody that had gone in there, that he was locked in. He forgets the rope. I don't think we're giving much away here. I, I agree, we, we should probably not do too many spoilers on this one, but... Uh, when he forgets the rope, I, I thought, just leave it. Just leave it. What are the chances that that's going to give you away? Or, or or just come back on Monday morning and, and, and pick it up, you know? Like, nobody's ever going to know. He just couldn't help himself, you know? And he was in such a hurry to go back and try to fix this mistake. I almost think that it, it was like the perfectionist in him, that he had this perfect plan. Yes, and that it yes, bugged him. It, had it to bugged be him that he he'd messed that up. So it wasn't even that that it probably would have been fine there, and nobody would have noticed, and it would have been no big deal. It was more that he couldn't stand it that he had messed up his perfect plan. And 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 like you said earlier, if he had just left it, it ended up falling to the ground anyway. Yeah. And it might have just been ignored or or passed over by the police. Although they probably would have picked it up. But what could they find? Where was the rope purchased and that sort of thing? But Oh, no. And then he, he leaves his car running. Yeah, that was so dumb. And then he left his gun in there and his, his trench coat and his little spy camera. So he, he really, on the one hand, he, he's a really smart guy. And it was funny because uh, Veronica and uh, her boyfriend, who I'm not sure. Uh, Lewis. Lewis, yeah. Even said something like, "Is it, he is he a spy?" These are all like spy things. I thought he acted kind of like a spy. Yeah, he did because he was doing uh, industrial espionage for that uh, CEO of the firm that he uh, murdered. The way that he methodically went through the elevator when he was stuck on it, trying to get out—that was like right out of a James Bond movie. Yes, it was. A couple of things about the uh, young couple, Veronica and Lewis. But before I do that. Uh, there must have been a fixation at this time in the 50s with uh, General Motors convertibles. Because <laughs> yeah. in Rafifi, he's driving a, a beautiful Pontiac convertible, probably a 1954 version or something like that. And in this one, it's a, about a 1952 or 53 Chevrolet convertible. And they were so unique at that time that they probably were thought of as really uh, going to add. And it does add to the film, but it's... It's interesting that that shows up. There's a definite focus on the cars. The young man, Lewis, just wants to drive around. And he, he they make like four laps of the same little section of the freeway. Yeah. And, the, and the girl, Veronica, is yeah. like, I'm, can we please be done? I'm, I'm bored. And he's like, well, you either like cars or you don't like cars. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I might like a car, but I don't want to just drive around on the freeway in a circle for hours. When I've stolen it to begin with. I, 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 the, the couple, that young couple, it, they were just aimless in terms of what they were going to do. And they were so young and so naive. And I think the message from the director on that point was, you know, is this, is this happening to a lot of 
young people, because it was also about the time that uh, Rebel Without a Cause was made and Blackboard Jungle, and there's an intertwining, I think, in the in the movies from the U.S. and France and Great Britain in terms of teenage sort of loneliness and misdirection or lack of direction in the 1950s following World War II. And I think it's picked up with those two. I just, you know, in, in, in kind of an odd way, I really felt sorry for her. Oh, yeah. The, the young woman, Veronica, because she got swept up by this guy that had no no value set other than he wanted to drive this car. I almost felt a little bit bad for him, too, because he, yeah, he just seemed so lost and just so aimless. He he sort of had made up this backstory for himself where he was fighting in the Indochine War and that, that he'd come yeah. back. And he was kind of a troublemaker a little bit, but in an, in, in sort of a innocent way like they were just like little things that he had done not a big he'd stolen a scooter you know and he was worried about that and then they stolen this car and okay i mean that's bad you shouldn't do that stuff but you know it's it's not like what happens later in the film oh yeah it escalates yeah and they both get really swept up in the events and then when they went back to her apartment afterwards and they made that pact yeah. and she flambe hey, good, tu as eu peur. Tu diras que tu as eu peur. J'ai pas eu peur, mais il s'avançait. S'il n'y avait pas eu ce revolver aussi dans la voiture, c'est des trucs dangereux. Tu crois qu'ils sont morts tous les deux Avec la chirurgie, maintenant, on fait des miracles. On empire même le cœur. Moi, ce sera la tête. Tais-toi. Il nous reste encore quelques heures de banc, après. Qu'est-ce qu'on va faire de nous nous séparer. Toi, tu seras chez les hommes, moi chez les femmes. Je ne veux pas, Louis. Nous ne serons plus ensemble qu'à la première page des journaux. Ceux qui liront l'article, ils comprendront. Qu'est-ce qu'ils comprendront Tout. Ce n'est pas vrai qu'on va te couper la tête. Si, j'ai l'âge. Je ne veux pas qu'ils te fassent de mal. Je leur interdirai. Nous quittons plus. Si on avait de l'argent, on pourrait filer en Amérique du Sud. Notre photo en première page. Les amants tragiques. Toi, tu t'en tireras. Tu n'as rien fait. Moi, demain matin, mon existence s'arrête. Je ne m'en tirerai pas. Je resterai avec toi. Penses-tu Tu sais pas ce que c'est, la police Non, Louis. Nous serons plus forts qu'eux. Nous mourrons ensemble. Quand there's a lot of subtext and a lot of uh, beauty to the film and the music supports it. And the other thing that's nice about it is is it's black and white. Yeah. I can't imagine that having nearly the impact if it was done in uh, Technicolor or Deluxe Color, one of those. It's just beautiful. Oh, especially that night scene where she's walking around the street. That... I was reading some comments. There was a little clip of that on YouTube, and some of the comments underneath were like, I love that her role in the whole movie is basically wandering around the city at night looking for Julian <laughs> and not finding him. <laughs> well, there's so much there's so much melancholy and a haunting nature to that. Those night scenes with her, and it's lonely and dreary. And she, you, you just, I began to feel sorry for her also because she's just... 
I mean, she's planned the murder of her husband, so I don't know why I'm feeling sorry for her, but she's just so lost. The film opens up with this conversation between her and Julian. C'est moi qui n'en peux plus. And you, you really get the sense of how almost desperate she is when he doesn't show up on time and, and she thinks maybe he's actually off with another woman. Kind of almost like the panic that sets in for her. And, it, and it's not a panic of, I don't know what to do. It's more like a panic of becoming unmoored almost from the one thing in her life that she felt maybe was uh, something she could rely on, which was him. Then the very ending when they just linger on those photographs and she looks so happy in those pictures. It was so sad in that it wasn't real. Like It wasn't something that she really should be relying on. It was this fling. And I don't even know if that guy was like yeah. all super serious about her either. Like you don't, I never got the sense from him so much that it was that serious for him. But for her, I got the sense like this was like everything to her. It almost seemed like he was more fixated on executing the perfect plan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like another paratrooper operation or something like that. The other thing is there are these short scenes throughout the film that are interesting, like when she wanders into that bar and those people are in there and she knows some of them or some of them knew Julian. And then the uh, pomposity of that one police inspector that shows up at the scene and how oh, he's yeah. controlling everything. He's He's directing the news media where they should go and then they need to leave. He gives that speech to the to the yeah. reporters. As you know, as I've told you before, and he goes into this this story about himself, and I thought, do these people care? It brought back some of the uh, memories I had of the characters in the Day of the Jackal <laughs> yeah. that were in the cabinet, and, and some of them, uh, how they were so impressed with themselves. Yes, that's, that's true. Yeah. It uh, This movie has a... Uh, 93% certified re uh, fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, viewers and raters see it much as we do. It's, it's, they, they give it a high, high hold, they hold it in high regard. I love the title of the movie too, Elevator to the Gallows. It kind of has a double meaning. It, it really plays into what happens with uh, Julian and the elevator and how in a metaphorical way, him getting stuck on that elevator elevator really leads to really bad things happening. And and then, but the whole film, the whole film is like this descent into just their lives unraveling. Like all the main characters that we meet, their lives just unravel during the course of the film. It's so well done. I, I give the, I, I, I go between a nine and a 10 on my rating. It's, I think I'll go with a 10. I really do. I really love this film. Yeah, I was... Yeah kind of vacillating too I, i'm gonna go with a nine and there's one reason why the that scene that you mentioned where she goes into that cafe slash bar where they're drinking and there was two points in that that really like took me out of the film it was weird 
There was one where there was this young woman sitting kind of behind like a soda fountain and she looks directly into the camera. And that kind of was like, took me out of it a little bit. And then there was another scene with another woman later in that bar section of the film where she was, she's just not a good actress. And it, it didn't ruin the film for me at, at all, but it, that, that one scene kind of stood out in my mind as like, oh, I wish they'd either cut that or redone it or I don't know. It just didn't, it took me out of the film a little bit. So I'm going to go with a nine. Maybe that's being nitpicky, but it's still a really good movie. Not at all. Not at all. No, that's what we do. We find the little things that we would do differently. Although in general, I think we're really respectful of the films that we've done. Um, yeah. I'm glad we've done it. And I, I think it's, it's a good it's a good precursor to the next one that we're doing, The the Bride Wore Black. Yeah, I can't wait for that. That sounds so good. I haven't, I've never seen it, so... Well, what, what makes it so good is that this, the woman is so strong-willed in that film. It's just overwhelming and new for the time when it was made. The characters in this film all seemed really real to me. Like, they acted in ways that I think real people would have responded. And there were no real caricatures, except for that one police detective who was being so pompous to, in front of the uh, news reporters. That was a little... <laughs> over the top he was a piece but of i work. think there's people like that so you know who, who am i to say oh definitely yeah definitely so yeah that was uh that was a really good movie so up next um we're going to be doing star wars and I, I i've given this a lot of thought because how do you how do you review star wars like that's such a <laughs> it's just going to be yeah, so I think it's one of the reasons why I've wanted to avoid doing some of these really big movies. It's like, I'm not even sure how to approach it. And I just want to talk about like what it means to me as like a, as a fan and how it continues to be a part of my life. And then now my kids' lives, like uh, Kaylin and I just watched all of the movies back to back, like over the course of many weeks but it was it was fun to just sit down and watch them all with him and then talk about them and decide which ones were our favorite and yeah did you do them in a chronological order yeah we started with episode one and then went all the way through and we we put uh we watched rogue one in chronological order within the story and then we forgot to watch solo in chronological order so we tagged that one on at the end but that one is sort of almost a standalone film in a lot of ways i like what you're pointing out because i the the 70s the mid 70s really were a pivot point for changing the whole dynamic of filmmaking from what it had been before 1975 the big spectaculars were like bridge on the river Kwai, lawrence of arabia you know these huge mega documentary almost type films and then we switched with star wars into a whole different view of of how to make filmmaking i have it here to watch again and i was i was thinking you know now i'm I'm going to sit there and wonder wow what do you say about this film there won't be anybody that listens to our podcast that hasn't seen this film i i would i would bet (laughs) but it'll be fun we'll have our own things to say about it and it's given me an opportunity to go back and do more reading and and watching a lot of george lucas interviews and and also kind of wondering, like, what if it hadn't been a success? <laughs> or what if he hadn't sold it to Disney? What would the sequels have been like? And oh, yeah. why did he sell it to Disney? And Well, I know it's just like a boatload of money that he got. But, you know, what, what other reasons would he have had to, to do that? And 
So it's it's just I think there's a lot to unpack. We we might have to break this into two episodes now that I'm talking about it. We might spend a lot of time talking about this movie. <laughs> it's it's a good one to do for our 200th show though. I wanted to ask have you've been reading more about him. What what does he do? What is he doing these days? Is he still He's still involved. So Really involved he, in he, the business or has he gone into other He's endeavors? still involved and so he was he was pretty instrumental in picking out the directors that were going to be part of the Mandalorian. But yeah, he's still involved and I think it's more of his like an advisor and, and sort of somebody that they go to when they want to ask questions about, well, why this? And, you know, what about this? And would, would this fit into the universe and that type of thing? One of the things I, I think I'm correct on is one of the directors uh, of, the, of the Star Wars films, now that it's a part of the Disney family, at one point was also directing uh, one of the films for Star Trek. J.J., I think it's Yeah, J.J. Abrams. Abrams did the first sequel. Yeah. I think he was doing both. Yeah. <laughs> he must have a really good grasp of how to use all that technology and fit it but it's, into if, a, if, an exciting you, story. As you learn more about how those sequels were made, it's sort of sad in a way. It's like when George came up with the original idea for the six films. Like he had in his mind the whole arc of the story and in broad terms, like, like he didn't have the scripts or anything like that, but he kind of knew generally what he wanted to do. And then when the sequels were made, they were really made almost independently of each other. There wasn't a lot of handoff or coordination of the story over the course of the three movies. So that's why, you know, when you watch them, there's, there's things that tie together, but there's also things that are like, whoa, you know, where'd that come from? That was out of nowhere. That was left field. I like those movies. It's just, I think they could have been so much more amazing if they had a bigger plan. Kind of like the Marvel MCU where they'd have little like hints of things in one movie that would show up in another movie. And then that would show up in another movie. And it all, and it all culminated in the Endgame movies where oh, okay. you could go back and you could say, oh, I remember when they showed that in the Captain America movie. Or, you know, I remember when that was in the Iron Man movie, right? And and, you, and, and then it makes you want to watch them all again and you, you want to pick up on all these little Easter eggs. And, and there was just really none of that in the sequels to Star Wars. It was, it was uh, yeah, I hope that they can maybe come out with another series of movies where it, it further develops and like deepens the mythology. Because to me, I think the stories are so mythological and that's what I really like about them is that they have that deep roots in, in like the hero's journey and, and the mythology, yeah. So uh, it's a, a greater continuity between the different films, but yeah, among the different films. And, and having said all that, I still really enjoyed it. I remember one of my best Star Wars memories, actually, is seeing the second sequel with Jaden at the little theater here in North Bend. And, and he and I just snuck off on a Friday, and, and I said, hey, you want to go watch the Star Wars movie? He's like, yeah, let's go. And so we, we watched it together, and, and it was just like one of those things that I did with him that I'll always remember. And, and we just had a great time and, and really enjoyed the movie. And so, I mean, that's, I mean, bottom line, I think that's really what it's all about is it, it creates, the, you can create these memories and have them. I still remember little snippets from the original Star Wars. I remember standing in line to go see Empire Strikes Back and how exciting that mm -hmm. was. And yep. so, yeah, they're all just kind of woven into the fabric of my life. And that's, that's going to be fun to kind of explore. Something. I was thinking, you know, you're talking about continuity be, be among films. Think of what the challenges would be with James Bond. What have they done, 25 or 26 films over 
almost 60 years. It's different, I know. It's a little different, but they do have, like, they have Q, and they have, like, you know, there's certain things yeah. in there that they yeah. that they kind of connect the dots together. Some of the bad men show up again, you know. Well, I suppose we should uh, maybe wrap this up, huh? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Okay. All right, well, that was our review of Elevator to the Gallows and a preview of our upcoming episode on Star Wars. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is Matt coming to you from North Bend. And Bob here in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching. Mm -hmm.